0: to Macintosh and Mod haven't seen what the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana.
1: And I'm David.
0: And today, we start a new series.
1: A new series? A new season?
0: A new season! Yes. This is season seven? seven. What the fuck, David? <laughs> That's the dumbest thing you've ever said. Not true. No, but it's up there. That's
1: all the dumbest.
0: It's close. It feels... In this moment, it feels right.
1: To be fair, our first couple of seasons, quote unquote, are kind of nebulous as to when they actually start or end.
0: Once we started doing Oscars, that's consistently when we took a break.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: So from whenever the Oscars happen, that's always the end. And then whenever we pick it back up, we start. Where we got messy was that year that we didn't stop because of the pandemic. Plus, we thought we were doing Bond. So... It was the whole thing.
1: There was a lot.
0: (laughs) That bad season ran insanely long, but now it's pretty consistent. Mm
2: -hmm. Sure. Yeah.
0: So today we're starting a new series, and we had so much fun doing the 90s and just picking one movie from each year that we decided to do that with the 80s, just to kind of break it up, do something different. Oscar seasons tend to be heavier films, and so it's kind of nice to go back towards like maybe something that's a little more pop culture and get a good mix for a decade. So we're doing the 80s.
1: The 1980s.
0: The 1980s. And so that means today we're doing 1980. And that means we watched Fame.
1: A chronicle of the lives of several teenagers who attend a New York high school for students gifted in the performing arts. I think we're going to have very different opinions about this movie.
0: That is very possible
1: because we uh, there there were hints as we talked about this. I don't hate this movie. I don't hate it either. I think it's actually pretty good. This is one of those
0: films that like this was the first time they did this. So then ev- all the movies that I like that are similar are exist because of this film.
1: They exist and they're judged based off of it. Here's here's my thing about this movie is that no, it's not it's not great.
0: Mm hmm. No.
1: However, for its flaws, it was it, to it, it to me still feels like the most earnest and the most thoughtful version of this that I think has been done. Mm-hmm. And I say that not even to disparage movies like Step Up, which I've 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 seen parts of. I haven't mm-hmm. seen the whole thing all the way through. We know we've talked about this before, mm-hmm. but I think especially that movie and lots of later movies focused so much on the performance as the thing to go see, which is not Mm. a bad thing. Yeah. This to me actually feels like they're trying to weave in a full story and they're trying to weave in a lot of interpersonal details. It's pretty clumsy in how it does it.
0: Yes, it's very clumsy.
1: But it tries.
0: (laughs) it it did try like you you again this is the first time anyone was trying to tell this type of story or it's not necessarily true but it's the first time that it was about like this particular type of environment
1: it's the first time for sure that we're focusing on high school kids i mean it, it, the whole thing was spurred the producer david De silva heard the school mentioned in a chorus line mm
2: mm-hmm.
1: which a Chorus Line was the original version of all of this. Sure. We we talk about it as a nexus, actually. This goes back to my theater days. I learned about this. A Chorus Line was a fully developed project based off of the recollections of people working in the theater. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it was the first of its kind to do that. Mm-hmm. This was the genesis of this story came out of that. And saying, what if we looked at these high school kids who are under this huge amount of pressure? Mm -hmm. And it it sort of mushrooms from there. And to me, like I said, I don't necessarily think it does the greatest job in the world, but I think it tries. And I think that's the reason it still, while it resonated more in its time, I still think it has a lot to say, especially more than some of the sequels and spiritual remakes that have come out of it. because. They've tried to remake this movie many, many times. Yes. Either as fame,
2: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> or as you know, just any number of different things. And to me, this one actually felt like it had something to try to say.
0: Um, I guess why do you think this one? What? Do, what do you think this one's saying versus the other?
1: So again, my scope is limited on on these other movies, right? And I'm fully admitting that. To me, though. What I've always seen in seeing at least parts of other movies that take from fame and that are spurned by fame is that they focus so much on the performance Mm -hmm. and they focus so much on the spectacle part of it and the vibe of being in performing spaces and less on the fact that of the environment in which these kids live. Mm -hmm. The other part of this that's really challenging is that New York in 1980 is a completely different place than most of the places where these movies are set in the 2000s. Yeah. So there's a whole other factor (laughs) to the environment that's going on. I just think that this movie, it upped the stakes in a way that, I don't know, it, it just rang truer because it was trying to get at something deeper than All of these kids are involved in the arts and want to put on a show. It's like, no, they have the kids actually think about all the implications of it.
0: I don't think that's true at all. Mm. Like, at all. Because, yes, it is all about, you know, fame. Like, they all think and want to become famous. And we see glimpses of you know oh that one guy who's gonna get out of here and he's gonna do great and then he's waiting tables which there's nothing shameful with that but like oh that job did not lead to crazy fame like everyone at school thought it was you have someone who um gets himself in a situation where they are clearly being taken advantage of um and they do things that they do not want to do um which is horrible and also didn't need to take place in this film um yeah um Like so, we got glimpses of that, but we really didn't go through see that all the way through. We didn't get to the point where we have kids standing at graduation going, "Yeah, I'm I'm going to college to be an accountant." Like I've loved my t- or or like I don't have what it takes. Uh, like we don't have. We see people like we see the one girl who changes her major, and that's fine. That's great, but. We don't see people like we don't see a combination of decisions and success plus failure. Like we don't we don't see that. And, and to be fair, we shouldn't see a lot. But that is not the message of this film. No, that's where it fails.
1: <laughs> I'll agree with you there. Uh,
0: the, the message of this film doesn't they don't know what message they're sending.
1: Well, no, but to me, it's the striving for it that feels different than a lot of imitators.
0: <laughs> um, I don't agree because I think other films that have taken place after this, particularly a step up series, which, yes, there's a series I've watched a lot of them, <laughs> I love them, I love the dance movies. The end point of success is not the sole focus of those films, nor is it intended to be. Um, it's more about. And in a lot of ways, a lot, it's about what going through those artistic processes do to enrich that person's life or to help lead them to the next thing that they're supposed to do, be
1: it in the arts or not,
0: which I think is really much deeper than this film.
1: Hmm. You think Step Up actually reveals all of that cuz then I'm going to have to go see it for sure. I
0: think, I'm thinking more about Step Up 2 as opposed to Step Up 1. I'm also thinking of Save the Last Dance, which dancing was part of how this girl dealt with trauma. It's how many of the people in that film dealt with trauma. Center Stage is just awesome, so <laughs> you should just watch Center Stage. Um uh, I'm also I keep thinking about Stick It, which is the gymnastics film which was severely underrated but I loved it. But that one was more about, like, it's not all about winning. It's about being awesome at the thing you're awesome at. And it just happens to be gymnastics. Like, just don't make an apology about it. Like, Olympics does not have to be your goal. It can be, but it doesn't have to be. And so, like, I think those films are much better about, like, talking about existing in whatever world they happen to to take place and be at the school dance what you know gymnastics whatever and making it about like that experience of being a child in this very competitive profession and it is looked at as a profession when even when you are a child in these environments this film does not have a clear thesis and it it wanders way too much It did not, I feel like the story that they they picked which characters they wanted to focus on, but then they didn't know what story they wanted to tell with those characters in a way that was cohesive and effective. They just said, these are scenes we want. And they did scenes.
1: That was a cohesive and effective statement.
0: It was. This is not my (laughs) first rodeo.
1: All right. The budget for this movie was $8,500,000.
0: It's not a lot of dollars.
1: And if you want to know that this is the 1980s, uh, the inflation rapidly changed over the decade. It was very interesting to go do the calculator numbers Mm -hmm. of like from year to year, the gap decreased dramatically. Mm -hmm, Okay. Uh, Thank you, Ronald Reagan. Uh, So in today's money, this is $31 million for a movie like this, which that makes sense. Mm -hmm. This is a like low medium budget style movie. Well, with, with a cast of unknowns, it grossed $21,200,000, $77,500,000 in today's money. It's nothing to sneeze at for a movie like this. Mm-hmm. No, no real marketing value. Again, nobody would made a movie like this before. So who the hell knew what the market was? And it was an R rated film. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. But it's wild to think about, right? Mm-hmm. A movie about teenagers that is rated R. <laughs>
0: Yeah, but I like it.
1: Yeah. That to me is also the thing that I appreciate that the movie wanted to push that boundary hard. And a lot of that has to do with our director. Mm -hmm. I kind of wish that somebody would take that mantle up. Again, it's really hard because, again, it's set in New York in 1980. That's a place where it's very easy to make an R-rated film. Not so easy to do that same image later down the road. When New York has, you know, not in the greatest of ways, been completely cleaned up. Okay. So I just, there, there's a characteristic of like, this is a really cool story, but again, you make it, you know, if we wanted to transport this to 2023, you cannot, the environment is not going to inform the cast in the same way mm-hmm. and the stories in the same way, because in 1980, the place where it's set is so fucking different. Mm. We talked about remaking this, and you made the great point of you transport this by kids who are already famous.
0: Yeah, we we talked about because spoiler alert, we also watched the uh, remake, and so we're like, okay, so how do we redo this again? Because we need to. The movie
1: is begging to be remade.
0: Yeah, and I think the difference that's would be more interesting now because we've had so many of these films that take place in a very specific, you know, school environment that it really becomes we need a, a I think actually a TV series could be really interesting where yeah it's kids who are already in the business whether like they are seasoned they started when they were babies they started when they were 10 and now you know they're they've reached you know that middle school high school time where it's just like you got it like everything's changing the game is completely changing for you whether you just got in or just got out like things are going to happen fast in a good way or a bad way um And it would be really interesting to see how like those dynamics and And also
1: some of some of them being influencers.
0: Yes. And that would definitely have to be a piece and have to be the kids who's really studied and worked hard and hustled versus the kid who just happened to, you know, the the kid who got found at the mall, Um, those types of things. And then also the, the kids were like, I'm just doing this to support my family or I'm just doing this until I decide, figure out what I want to actually do. Those are more interesting stories.
1: So what we're saying is this meets The Breakfast Club. Um,
0: no. I'm going to see if there's a show that does this very well now. Something similar. I don't know. But it would be interesting.
1: Yeah. I, I think the time and place is so specific to the movie that mm-hmm. it makes it really hard to just retell this story
0: again. No, and it it's not this story, but it's this idea yeah. of young people pursuing an artistic career and I think that's better as opposed to just fame because they are very different things
1: now the other thing that informed the movie besides it being mentioned in a chorus line is that one of its most famous alumni Freddie Prinz, mm-hmm. committed suicide mm-hmm. and it was a very public thing Freddie Prinz was an up-and-coming star and David De Silva the producer kind of went to go check it out because of the demanding environment that he came out of and his sort of meteoric rise Mm -hmm. now they make it pretty fucking obvious because they hammer it through with one character Mm -hmm. um and we'll get into that but that's another thing that informs it is this this one story kind of became the central motif for the whole movie Mm -hmm. which i don't think is terrible all right let's talk about our writer Oh, the gentleman is named Christopher Gore. This is it. This is all he ever really did. But hey, that's nothing to sneeze at. He wrote the movie, created and worked on the TV series all the way through its run in 1987. So right after this, it gets made into a TV show and it goes from 82 to 87. Okay. 130 episodes. Did great. And then in 1988, he passed away from HIV. Hmm. What do we think of the writing of this movie?
0: It is very flawed. I,
1: it does an incredibly good job of setting up the characters. Yes, it establishes them really well. It puts them in the in the lane in which they're going to be in. the The drama kids. Oh my god, I was having flashbacks.
0: Oh yes, <laughs> and the dancers, uh, it, all of it. Band, the band kids. Um, that kid who's just like, I'll do anything. Just to be here. The kid who's just, you know, he's lying about literally everything. Yeah. Um, Yeah, we all know that guy. The archetypes are great. The setups are also very good. Like, uh, the whole audition process, fabulous. Like, you feel for these teachers who have to sit through this shit. Like, how you don't roll your eyes constantly is just a tribute to your love of teaching this craft. But, yeah, it's... The way it continues is so artfully done that it's just really, it's really hard to like, be like, I really want that person to like, be okay. Like, it's hard to care about an individual character. It really is.
1: Yeah. Everything outside of the school-ish, mm-hmm. gets, it's just messy. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I will say, a lot of this isn't our writer. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because our director did a ton of rewriting here. Okay. He really hammered into it. And a lot of this had to do with the studio was like, we want, we've got a movie with teenagers. We want to make it for teenagers. Yeah. And our director, I think to his credit, said, no, you're missing the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. There's something deeply difficult that these kids are facing. And they're going through really difficult emotional processes about it. Now, they raise the stakes too high at several points, and mm-hmm. you don't have actors or writing that can support those stakes. Mm-hmm. But I think he rightfully recognized that it was like, if we water this down, it's not going to mean nearly as much. Mm-hmm. And I think Gore, especially because he created the TV series, and we'll get into some of the mess of the TV series later, I, I think his script may have been a lot more... Studio friendly. Okay. So I think you've got, two, you've got two visions clashing at moments. And I think, honestly, it just really comes down to that when they raise those stakes, when you've got Barry raising the stakes when he's talking about Freddie Prinz, mm-hmm. his moments of emotional vulnerability are really great, but the actual moments of things happening just feel shoved in. Same thing goes with Irene Kara and the producer in The Apartment. And on the one hand, I get it doesn't need to be there. On the other hand, I do think there's a way that you could have done that and it feel logical and makes sense instead Mm -hmm. of feeling just shoved into the script, especially in 1980s New York.
0: Yeah, maybe.
1: Like There's an element of that that character and that moment that is very hyper-specific to New York in the 80s, but the way it's presented is just out of the blue for no reason. And I think it's just a lot of that for me that it's just like you raise the emotional stakes in such an inartful way (laughs) that I don't believe it when these characters finally get their moment to actually like emote about that. Mm -hmm. Like his monologue about what happened to his little sister is heartbreaking. Yeah. But it doesn't really mean a whole lot when you've just sort of suddenly shoved it in front of us.
0: Yeah. It's just kind of like. OK, it's it's really just used as a reason for those two characters to hook up. Like, it's just
1: it's just, it's a, it's messy. It's really messy. Yeah. And And again, there was a way to do that because you can see the seeds of how that was building up to that where it's like he lies about everything. Well, why does he lie about everything? Because his life is a train wreck mm-hmm. and he doesn't want to talk about it. <laughs> I, 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 that that's really the mess here. Like, mm-hmm. if we could have just cleaned all of that up and made it much more logical, and probably cut out of uh, some pieces here, and like, there's there's so much random stuff going on with characters that it's like, if we could cut some of that random shit out mm-hmm. and just give us some time with the characters, that would probably be better. Thank you. Yeah. But then we wouldn't get the hot lunch jam. So that was so bad. <laughs>
0: like there's no school in the world that will allow children to jump on a piano well
1: well, you know i will say it's a fun scene to watch
0: it is a fun scene but the thing is it happens one time (laughs) And, and and it's
1: just no all right well the school was based on the real fiorello laguardia high school of music and art and performing arts now, at the time, it was the New York City High School for Performing Arts. It has since changed its name. Mm-hmm. It is a public school in Manhattan, so any New York City high school student who auditions successfully is allowed entry. That's awesome. It is free. Uh, notable alumni include Matthew Morrison, mm-hmm. Chaz Bono, Ellen Barkin, Jack A. Harry, Billy D. Williams, and Al Pacino. Mm-hmm. Okay. What title could have been better?
2: Oh, I don't
1: know. It was originally called "Hot Lunch." No. Now, it's not the worst name in the world to tie it all together, and as a working title, I don't hate it, because mm-hmm. again, the whole, you know, we get brought up near the end of the movie. It's like all they promised you was a bunch of art classes lunch. and a hot lunch.: <laughs> Yeah,
0: that's fair. I don't hate it.
1: Yeah. Uh, however, our director walked past a porn theater on 42nd Street and saw it showing a 1978 porn film called "Hot Lunch." Yeah. So they opted to change the name. Fair. The producers then brought up a bunch of other ideas, and oh boy, Diana.
0: Oh, this sounds fun.
1: Never let the studio name a movie. Mm -hmm. Razzle Dazzle. Nope. Neon Dreams. That's a different porn. Break a Leg. That's a horror film. Tinsel and Glitter. Also a porn. Stage Struck. That's a mixed metaphor. Yeah. And Reach for the Sky. That's an afternoon special. <laughs> After all of these were rejected by our director, mm-hmm. who had a very different vision for this movie, mm-hmm. uh, he instead approached David Bowie because they are both British, and he asked if he could steal the title Fame from Bowie's 1975 album Young Americans. Okay. Oh, that worked so much better. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
1: They got it right, they nailed it with that mm-hmm. one. Oh, stage that—the one that gets me the most is stage struck. I'm like,
0: oh, it's just awful to say.
1: It's the worst, right? Mm-hmm. Ugh. Now let's talk about our director. This gentleman's name is Alan Parker. Okay. He is a British director. Before this, he directed Bugsy Malone and Midnight Express. Okay. After this, Shoot the Moon. Pink Floyd, The Wall, Birdie, Angel Heart, Mississippi Burning, Come See the Paradise, The Commitments, The Road to Wellville, Evita, Angela's Ashes, and The Life of David Gale. He then stepped away for many years and passed away in 2020. What do we think of Alan Parker's directing of this movie? Blech. Blech.
0: So The writing is so bad, and he did not make any of it better. See,
1: okay, this is where I think I found a lot of redemption is I kind of like his directing. Okay. I think he's actually going for it a lot, Mm. and he's taking a bunch of chances with the story that he's got to try to make it as impactful as it is. Again, the movie's a mess because the writing's a mess, and he put his hand in a lot of the writing. But I think his choices and his decision to say, no, I'm not just going to make this some you know PG rated movie. I want to actually show every deeper part of this. Mm-hmm. I think that's his directorial vision. I think him rewriting the script is a big part of the problem. <laughs> but nice. I, I think his directing is actually one of the more successful things in the movie. Hmm. Like one of the one of the things I one of the shots and scenes I love the most is when is when Montgomery is up in his loft apartment Mm -hmm. by himself and you see him under the Coca Cola sign and then he sings that song on his guitar. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful.
2: Yeah, that's a beautiful
1: shot. It is. And as horrible as the scene is, when you see Coco, you know, he shows her and he doesn't show her on film. He Mm -hmm. shows her in that horrible moment on a videotape. Mm -hmm. Another really good shot. (laughs) As bad as that moment is in the writing, his choices visually, I think, make a big impact.
2: Mm.
1: It's what made me not be bored of the movie, to be perfectly honest. Mm. All right, well, Parker made the specific choice to have the first shot of the movie be a poster of Olivier playing Othello. The reason for this was the greatest actor of his time during that production experienced stage fright during the middle of a performance and lost all self-confidence. Olivier had to be coaxed back into getting back on stage. Mm -hmm. He wanted to point to the movie stripping away the sheen of all performance and as a subtle nod to Montgomery for getting his lines during his audition. Mm -hmm. So Parker shot That's just the sort of level of thought and care he was putting into visually how he did it, which I thought was interesting to note is like, okay, he was really thinking through this. He opted to film in sequence over 11 months from March to November 1979, allowing the cast to simulate the full high school experience together. Mm -hmm. That's smart. Yeah. Especially for a movie like this. And he filmed almost 10 hours of footage necessitating deep cuts to get the film to its final length. Okay. I think that might be a big part of our problem too is that he's got a really interesting contiguous story but he had to cut out a whole lot. One of those moments where I might not, I might not be mad if I saw a director's cut here. Not 10 hours. No. Unless it was a series. Okay. But <laughs> maybe I, I, would, I would sit down with a, v, a DVD and watch a three hour cut of this movie. If he restored some tissue that's missing. Maybe. He did all of this without the cooperation of the high school of the performing arts. Really? When they brought the script to the school, they were not comfortable with the profanity, nudity, and drug use. Fair. Now, that's fair. But then they took a further dig at him by mentioning his previous film, Midnight Express, which I will tell you. Won several Oscars and is a great movie.
0: Okay, I've not seen that one.
1: They said, quote, you cannot do to the school what you did with Turkish prisons, unquote. Mm -hmm. Parker and his producer Alan Marshall were so angry and frustrated after this that they reportedly shouted a number of obscenities at the board, and then, on doing that, said, quote, everything that's just been said has been overheard in the hallways of this school. Unquote. Hmm. Point made.
0: Uh, yeah?
1: <laughs> the school was not amused and they did not overturn their decision. But he's right. Yeah? <laughs> there, There is the level of, I understand you've got your reputation to uphold. Yeah, but the flip side of that is, is that these kids are in high school in New York City in a time where the sort of stereotypes, old stereotypes about New York City were actually kind of true. Yes. The city was not in the greatest of shape in 1980. hmm So he's... He, I, I think his whole point was like, the stories we're telling here are tame compared to what some of the shit these kids have gone through. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, just adding the insult to Midnight Express of like, you're not going to do the same thing that you showed Turkish prisons when he's like, hey... I actually told a true story about a guy who went through hell in a Turkish prison? What the fuck are you talking about? (laughs) So, uh, yeah. Anyway, they couldn't use the actual high school for filming, so they instead found an abandoned school in the Upper West Side, and Parker got the designers to meticulously recreate all of the classrooms, hallways, and bathrooms. Hmm. Every detail down to faded paint, cracked walls, dirty furniture, leaky pipes, and the general rot of the interior was built from new materials completely and then made to look worn. All right. So props to the production design on this movie. Mm-hmm. Cuz holy shit, it just looked like they were in a fucking school.
0: Yeah, no, I I would have thought it was a a working school at the time, but that's cool.
1: Producer De Silva was one of the biggest champions of getting Parker to uh, direct this film, but after beginning to see the footage and how dark it was going, he began to backpedal.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He wanted a hit. Yeah, De Silva interpreted the movie as quote inspirational and uplifting. while Parker's vision was too dark and disturbing. Parker ignored all of this. He wanted to get it as real as possible. Mm-hmm. During the famous dance sequence, Bob Fosse visited the set. possibly to help him out with some of the staging ideas. And during lunch, they both then commiserated at how difficult it had been to get filmed. He also used a previous trick and technique we've talked about on this show to get the diffuse gauzy look of the movie. He stretched a nylon stocking over the lens and camera, the same technique that cinematographer Oswald Morris used for Fiddler on the Roof.
2: Oh, okay.
1: Oswald Morris pioneered that technique for Fiddler. Not like it's a crazy innovative technique, but it works, so... Mm -hmm. Now, Parker has been incredibly dismissive of the attempts to revive this concept. This might have been because he just had a massive ego. Who knows? Mm -hmm. Uh, He called the 1982 TV series An Abomination and the 2009 remake Reprehensible Garbage. I kind of agree with him on that one. Still, in 2015, American Idol producer Nigel Lithgow Approached MGM to revive the story as a new TV series, looking to make it darker and akin to the original film. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: That never got off the ground, but like we said, this is begging for a remake, though somebody's got to come up with a better concept that fits our time. Mm -hmm. Now, to be fair to Parker on the TV series, a plotline from the first season proves his point. In season one, episode nine, the character of Danny Amatullo, our new Ralph fill in, He wants to become a stand-up while starting to get into drugs because he's insecure in dealing with his father's disapproval. They took the Ralph storyline, which was pretty groundbreaking at the time. Mm -hmm. And instead, he gets his father to be okay with him and he gets off drugs and it's a completely Reagan-era values change and it praises God and family. Yeah, that's not this movie. (laughs) Uh, Not even a little bit. (laughs) Like, what the fuck? it's network television you were never gonna get away with this shit Mm
2: -hmm. all
1: right let's talk about our cast we we have some very good bright spots in our cast for sure
2: Mm -hmm.
1: now i will say none of our grown-up actors are gonna be listed in the main cast here Mm -hmm. because guess what they're not the main cast so we start with irene cara as coco she was a legendary singer and performer Before this, she was on The Electric Company, was in Sparkle, Roots, The Next Generations, and Guiana Tragedy, The Story of Jim Jones. After this, she was in Killing Him Softly, DC Cab, City Heat, and Happily Ever After, but she really, really pushed her fame as a singer. She sang the scene to Flashdance, What a Feeling, and mostly performed live throughout the 1990s, and she just passed away this past year. Mm. What do we think of Irene Cara in this movie?
0: She's... She's pretty good, but it's just so obvious that they were trying to push her as the star.
1: I think there's that. I think also out of everybody, she was like the best example of a multiple threat. Mm -hmm. Like everybody else here fits into their specific lane. Yeah. Just as a general actor. Irene Cara was the only one out of this whole group that could have gone in whatever fucking direction she wanted to go in. And, and she chose singing mm-hmm. as her profession. Mm-hmm. But like, she she could dance, act, sing. Mm-hmm. I, I think she could play piano. So it's just all of those different things for her. But I do agree that it's like, she's not necessarily the best actress in the movie.
0: <laughs> no, she's not.
1: Now, then she gets up there and sings on my own and you're like, Fuck. <laughs>
3: And star to guide me far and shine me
1: home. So you, you get why it's like, well, yeah, no, you have an incredible voice.
0: She dies. Yeah,
1: she's not the strongest performer, but I don't think she's bad for sort of a a lead central character. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in that scene that we keep talking about where we're not going to describe what happens because it's terrible. She does a really great job, though. Mm -hmm. She really does. Um, It would have been interesting, though, to to see more out of her acting wise over time. Mm -hmm. You know, I know that's not what she wanted. She wanted or chose to do in her performance career. But it's kind of like you're seeing the first moments of a star. Mm-hmm. And you're kind of like, well, where did that star go? Yeah. And after the 80s, she's just like, no, nah, I'm just gonna go sing instead. Yeah, that's cool. So whatever. Who could have been better? We'll talk about this later. Debbie Allen. Ooh. Yes. And we'll we'll get into that. All right. Then we have Lee Carreri as Bruno. Okay. The synthesizer guy. I love it. After this, he kept the same role throughout the TV series. Oh, okay. He was in Crystal Heart, and he did a number of TV spots, but he mostly works as a composer for various small projects. He doesn't have a lot of big credits after this. hmm This guy's not an actor.
0: <laughs> no, but I I really loved his character because that is so... That is a perfect example of somebody who should not go to a place to formally learn a craft, <laughs> because his brain like no because you you meet those people who they're amazing artists and whatever their chosen medium is they have no training it is just their brain has figured something out and they're doing it and it's just like don't ruin it don't don't go to school and teach yourself something else because right now you are riding some wavelength when you feel like you are out of gas you have nothing left him to take then go to school learn some new things and then you'll have all of this time that you spent learning on your own to bring to that but he is the perfect example i really loved his character because he never learns anything <laughs> like other than like and his dad is just so supportive that's it it's just like i'm frustrated by all this bullshit this is a waste of time and it almost crushes his soul he's sitting there trying to learn how to do this piano bullshit and it's like he could do so much cooler shit on his own without this school and i did i did really love that
1: yeah i will say the music teacher here and the and the the music lesson part of it mm-hmm. they missed the opportunity of having a music teacher who is supportive and intrigued by this character but also points out that was like you do realize that there's a reason why you need to learn this other shit <laughs> And and I only say that because we do get a lot of that with the other teachers
0: and see like in I feel like in step up, they not step up center stage. There's a really good moment of of like there's like there's a reason why we're making you do this same thing over and over and over and over and over again. Uh, which is great and really interesting this was also a great because we have this scene where the teacher's like you're you're not going to make it you're just not going to make it like you don't have what it takes She's like well i got in here it's like that's not enough and this would have been a great place to be like i can teach you all of these things but i don't think you want to learn those things and i well i think they have value i think what you're doing on your own has its own value and i think you need to pursue that mm-hmm. like i want a teacher to tell them you're too good to be here. Like I cannot teach you what you need to learn to continue.
1: That's the kind of kid who just needs to get through high school and do his own shit, and then go to like fucking Oberlin and do weird shit in college.
0: Honestly, that's a kid that I would be like, "We're pulling you out of school. You're gonna get your GED, homeschool. You get get that shit done so it is out of the way, so you can spend your time focusing on this."
1: Yeah, fair. I mean, there are definitely colleges for those people, but not sure. high schools. But uh, Lee Carreri is not uh, not an actor.
0: No. no, he's he's definitely
1: not. <laughs> Let's talk about a guy who is a pretty good actor, and I kind of like him here. Paul McCrane as Montgomery. Mm-hmm. Now, before this, he had a small role in Rocky II. Mm-hmm. After this, he's in the Hotel New Hampshire, Purple Hearts, RoboCop, The Blob from 1988. All the TV movies and guest starring spots, The Shawshank Redemption, he had a pretty good run on ER, and Atlas Shrugged to The Strike. If you see him older now with like, he's got a, a little bit balding and has a little bit more of a beard, mm-hmm. you recognize this character actor guy. Oh, yeah. He's like a that guy.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He's so good.
2: <laughs> he is
0: so good, and he's quiet. And they they did, you can tell they really were very careful about his character. I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm not saying it's great, but they were very careful with him.
1: Montgomery's one of the best written characters. In the he
0: whole is. Movie. He is.
1: And specifically because they said, we're going to have a gay character and he doesn't give a shit.
0: And it's not about that. He has one scene where it is definitely about him being gay and that's it. But the yeah. rest of it is just him working on his craft, being friends and just wanting to do that. That's it. All it is.
1: Yeah, the only other incidental part is just that he's lonely because he doesn't have any other gay friends there. Yeah. Like, that's really all it is. And it's a beautiful thing to watch, mm-hmm. especially from 1980. Like, that, that is one thing that people were like, whoa, it's a groundbreaking little moment. There's, there was a lot I had to go through to, like, be okay with this, but I am. And really, the story is more that his mother is nowhere to be found. Mm-hmm. Because she's famous, and he's like, "I love this too, but I'm trying to figure it out." Yeah, <laughs> and he's the voice of reason for the whole movie, and then McCrane just does a really beautiful job of just being simple and understated with all of it. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's thoughtful. It's great. If every character and storyline had been like his, the movie would have been incredible. Yes. Other characters have these really good moments like mm-hmm. Montgomery, but they don't have the same consistency as Montgomery. Yes. And that's kind of where it's like, damn, I wish we had gotten the same consistency of story throughout. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that's the writing. Who could have been better? Emilio Estevez
0: Oh, auditioned for this role. Oh, that would have been lovely.
1: It would have been lovely. But here's the thing. I think he's so much better as the Jack in The Breakfast Club. Yes. Like, he fits that archetype so much better.
0: I think he could have done this very, very well.
1: The way that look and that that big red curly afro, it just play. fits that kid of famous person vibe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> On the other hand, so does Emilio Estevez. Then we have a big one.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Not a big one because he's a famous person, but a big one because there's a whole bunch of backstory with him. Okay. Barry Miller as Ralph Mm -hmm. now before this he had done a lot of television and Saturday Night Fever okay after this the journey of Natty Gann Peggy Sue got married The Last Temptation of Christ and Flawless what do we think of Barry Miller in this movie
0: he's doing a lot of things I mean he's
1: great Uh uh-huh the writing is a mess yes but I think he's Here's the thing. We, we value commitment out of actors.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He's fully committed.
0: Yes, he is.
1: Whether or not it's successful doesn't have that much to do with Kim mm-hmm. so much as it does with the writing's bad. But like he's pushing it as far as he can. And in those moments where it should be just totally eye-rolling bad because of how stupidly they've inserted the stakes, he still makes it gut-wrenching. Yeah. Him talking about Freddie Prinz should just make us, and instead, I'm like, damn. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So that that has everything to do with him. Mm -hmm. That being said, it's really hard then to judge too much of his performance because, like, well, what would have been like if we'd have given you, like, actually good shit to work with, dude? (laughs) Mm -hmm. I don't know if you feel the same way about him, though.
0: I think because the writing is such a mess, it's really hard. I would like to see him. In different things.
1: Yeah. Well, so here's the interesting thing. The critics
2: mm-hmm.
1: were absolutely convinced he was getting nominated for this performance. Mm-hmm. And again, it's hard to judge by the standards of 1980. Mm-hmm. where are like, he's doing so much that's so different in 1980. than now we look at it and go, this is stupid.
0: Yeah, no, I get it.
1: One of the biggest voices in his campaign was the Village Voice columnist Arthur Bell. Mm -hmm. He uh, continuously praised him, was like, this this kid needs to win an Oscar. He's so good. And then in an interview, Miller told Arthur Bell that he had absolutely no interest in doing press work and lobbying to get the nomination.
2: Mm.
1: He refused. He said, I think the work should speak for itself. I respect that. And he was like, he is very much an actor's actor. Mm Mm-hmm he's like i don't i don't want to deal with it i don't want to do the press for it i don't want to get caught in the pr machine it's not what i'm in this for and bell notes in the interview that he he admires him for it hmm. but he also completely feared that it was going to tank his career and it kind of did like this could have made him a star and instead he was like yeah i don't care about that it's not why i do this
0: i get not caring and not wanting to lobby but there's a difference between lobbying and promoting your film like promoting the work you did right Uh, promoting the project as a whole there's nothing wrong with that i it's you know you, you it's very easy when you you can tell somebody's just in it for themselves when it comes to promotion and doing press so that that was probably a mistake but if he also was like oh i do not want this attention at all and i'm going to make sure that stops right now then good for him for boundaries
1: Yeah, and and to be fair, I don't think it was like, I'm refusing to talk about this movie. No, no, no. He was perfectly fine doing press for fame. Mm -hmm. It was that he didn't want to go into the amount of work and grind to then turn it into superstardom. Mm -hmm. He looked at that and was like, that's not why I act.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's fair.
1: Worked out okay for him because he won a Tony for Biloxi Blues later
2: on. Wow, that's cool.
1: And he, a lot of these people did lots of stage work. Mm-hmm. So let's be very clear, like none of these people wound up in any bad place. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that that is an interesting moment, but that really, I think, sank any chance he had of getting a nod. Yeah. Now, we talked about Ralph's monologue about his little sister, which is mm-hmm. pretty dang good.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: It was a debacle to film, however, and this is where we find that While Alan Parker might have had the right idea of going for gritty and true Mm -hmm. in the actual good way of that, he might have pushed it too far. Uh Uh-oh. During the filming of that scene, Parker and Miller began to argue. Miller, to his credit, and I agree with him here, thought it should be a quiet, intimate, slowly tearful memory, an actor's point of view here. Mm -hmm. It's a much more interesting approachable way to play that scene. Yeah. Parker wanted an intense emotional breakdown. No. The power struggle over this lasted for 2 nights. Wow. And multiple takes. Parker was continuously pushing him, unsatisfied with the result. Parker continued to insist on more and more takes. He began to shock the actors, the crew, and the studio. Mm at how intense it started to get between them. The arguments got so intense that Miller said that he eventually wound up using Parker's anger and hatefulness in how he talked to him to fuel his performance as, like, his father attacking him.
2: Interesting.
1: (laughs) And he finally gave Parker the performance he was looking for. 30 years later, Parker admitted his guilt in the moment of pushing Miller too far, pushing him beyond his limits to, quote, the deepest and most painfully exposed levels of what I knew to be his abilities as an actor. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So I think Parker, w- I-, I think Parker had the right idea, yeah, of wanting to try to push this in a more realistic, darker, tougher direction. But I think he did that too far, and at the expense—not just of the actors, but at the expense of the project. And that's why it's so clumsy and feels so weird. But that Mm -hmm. story tells a lot. All right. Two more main actors. We have Gene Anthony Ray as Leroy. This was his debut. He actually attended the New York City School of Performing Arts, but he got kicked out after a year, Hmm. uh, I believe for bad grades, just like Leroy. That's funny. After this, he reprised his role for the TV show, appeared in Eddie and Austin Powers and Goldmember. And also was an original cast member of Carrie on Broadway. Oh, very cool! <laughs> so he gets a not so great claim to fame. Um, he did tons and tons of other stage work too. But he passed away in two thousand three after a stroke, which may have potentially been complicated by HIV and AIDS. Mm. What do we think of Gene Anthony Ray in this movie?
0: He's very good.
1: Oh, the dance moves!
0: I mean, the man can dance.
1: And the face.
0: The face is great. I do love. I think that was another really good, um, you know, the, fr- the, the person who is supposed to just be there to support the friend who really wants it, but they also want it, but they just aren't as outspoken about it. Love that. That was a good dynamic to play.
1: Unfortunately, Leroy gets pulled into way too many, like, bad tropes.
0: Yes. That wasn't necessary. Like, the not being able to read thing was not good yeah at like struggling in school or just being like i don't give two shits about this why am i bothering like this is a waste of my time that's fair and valid the rest of it was just like let's just throw in more disadvantages
1: it's another one of those like you're raising the stakes way higher than they need to be to get the point Mm -hmm. across to us It was like, you need a character that struggles with the school part of this equation. Great. That's what Leroy should be doing. But it doesn't need to go that deep. (laughs) And finally, Maureen Teefy as Doris or Dominique, if you will. I love that. That was hilarious. Uh, Before this, she was in 1941. After this, she was in Greece 2, Supergirl. She didn't do like a whole bunch. Mm -hmm. This is always going to be your claim to fame, though she has done stage work, too. Oh, Doris is so good.
0: I wish her audition hadn't been the way... I wish they hadn't set up that audition that way. I the audition
1: wish- was so fucking weird for that It was character. so weird
0: because her progression is the best written one in the whole film. It is the best because it's natural and it makes sense for how they establish her as a very um, meek girl. What I wish had happened at that audition was that they go and then you have the pushy fucking mom and she's just going and going and going. And I wish the teacher, who is being the most gracious human of all, would have been like, hey, mom, I need you to step outside. We're not going to let parents stay in. And then the second mom is gone, she, she, she pulls it out. And it's no longer this awkward, stuttery audition. It's actually a performance. And you're like, oh, okay, it's not just that mom wants this for her. She actually wants this, but mom is a nightmare.
1: Well, and and I think that the other part of it and where they were going with it is mom is pushing her because mom is like, you have a dream. But the only fucking way you're getting this dream is by going to the public school for this. That just
0: didn't come off at all.
1: No, like you can tell that's what they wanted. Mm -hmm. But what it should have been was not overbearing mom. Mm -hmm. What it should have been was pushy mom who is like, get the fuck up there and do it. Because if you don't, you're never going to get this chance again. Mm-hmm. Like that was supposed to be the point. Yeah, and that's w- because then later on, when you see their relationship, you're like, "Oh, okay, I get it." Yeah, because she's got an overbearing Jewish mother. Like that was gonna come up. Mm-hmm. But it should have. It should have been like we feel like, oh God, you know, she's pushing her too hard, and then you realize, no, 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 she has to push her this hard because this girl is too shy to do it on her own. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what it should have been. But God, her whole monologue about how she just can't be real as an actor because she doesn't know anything. And I'm like, oh my God, I know this people.
2: Oh yeah,
0: I love it. I haven't I lived it. This
2: way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 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 I will try this again, Doris. It sounds kind of phony. No, I don't want to try this again, Doris. Oh, there's nothing wrong with you. Yeah, I know there's nothing wrong with me. That's what's wrong with me.
3: Everybody else here is colorful or eccentric or charismatic. And I'm perfectly ordinary. My nose is ordinary, my body's ordinary, and my voice, it's, yuck! I don't know why I'm here. You want to be an actress? Yeah, but actors and actresses are colorful, flamboyant beings. I'm about as flamboyant as a bagel.
0: And then, like, she's deciding that she's going to pretend to be blind on the street. It's just absurd, and I don't like that, but I find it, I was like, this is such what children think acting is and method bullshit. It's so funny.
1: I just and then somebody puts the coin in the cup and they're like, "Huh?" Oh. <laughs> 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 My work, never mind. Uh I I love Doris so much. I would have liked mm. more Doris. Yes. As a balance for some of the other stuff going on, to be honest. Yeah. Uh and then she she goes and sees Rocky Horror and decides she's going to be an actress. <laughs> It's very good. All right, let's talk about some Arpons.
0: Random people love notes.
1: Albert Haig as Mr. Sharofsky, the music teacher. Mm-hmm. He reprised his role in the TV show. He's most notable for having composed the music for How the Grinch Stole Christmas.
0: Wow, that's pretty cool.
1: Anne Mira as Mrs. Sherwood, the academics teacher. She is a comedic legend, Ben Stiller's mom, an incredible actress. She was supposed to reprise her role in the TV show, due, but due to obligations for CBS on Archie Bunker's place, mm-hmm. she could not join.
2: Mm, okay.
1: We have a lot of who could have been betters here. Diane Keaton.
0: Oh, that would have been
1: interesting. Melinda Dillon. I don't
0: know who
1: that is. Oh, yes, you do. Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Oh, uh, Okay, yeah. Prince of Tides. Mia Farrow. No. And Gina Rollins.
0: Hmm, maybe. Hmm.
1: We have Joanna Merlin as Mrs. Berg, the dance instructor. She originated the role of Seidel in Fiddler on the Roof, mm-hmm. and then served as a casting director for Sondheim and Harold Prince, starting mm-hmm. with Company, Follies, A Little Night Music, Pacific Overtures, Sweeney Todd, and Merrily We Roll Along. Mm-hmm. And she cast the original Evita for Prince and Lloyd Webber. So when she says she can read talent, holy shit, can that woman read talent. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we have Jim Moody as Mr. Farrell, the drama teacher. He may make an appearance later in the series. Okay. We have Debbie Allen as Lydia.
0: Yeah, Debbie Allen.
1: Uh, she's a legendary choreographer, director, and absolutely amazing lady. Her role was a lot bigger I- I- in the cut of the movie. She was a star student competing with Coco. She would have been like a senior, and Coco was the new kid. Mm -hmm. And so we see her in like one little scene, Mm -hmm. right? At the very beginning, she's sitting next to Mrs. Berg when they're auditioning the dancers. Okay. Because her role began to pull focus from the younger stars, they cut it. Okay. And Debbie said in interviews, she's like, they were clearly positioning Irene as the star. Yes. And I pulled focus from that. She's back. However, she then became one of the biggest stars of the TV series. Mhm. Her character became the dance instructor. Love it. So, that's how they sort of worked around that. But again, that's where I'm like I would watch, you know, a much longer even like up to 3 hour cut of this movie if you had more time to pull some of those characters. Yeah. We have Laura Dean as Lisa, who says, fuck it, I'll just join the drama department. Uh, This was her debut film role. One of her biggest claims to fame, she did lots of TV spots and voices. She did voices for My Little Pony the movie in 1986. Mm. And she was Sophie on Friends.
0: Sophie on Friends. Sophie. Oh, I do know that is Rachel's boss assistant. Show it up your ass, Sophie. Yes, I know who she is. Okay, cool. <laughs> I, see, it's in there. It's in there. I would never lose that. <laughs> <laughs> I will forget our children's names before I forget friends.
1: And that is the same girl who continually overshares and says love horrible it. things to people. And then gets kicked it. out of the dance department. <laughs> I love it. She is also Lee Carreri's sister-in-law. Okay. Interesting stuff. Antonia Franceschi as Hillary hmm Again, another character where we've just pushed it too far. Yeah. Uh, before this, she was a dancer in Greece. After this, she had a dance moment in The Karate Kid Part 2. But the thing is, she's not an actress. Mm-hmm. Balanchine chose her for the New York City Ballet right after the film was made. And she danced with them for 12 years before moving to London and working with lots of newer choreographers. Mm-hmm. Um, So she danced for many years in new pieces, and now she is an established choreographer herself. Hmm. So she like full on went down the deep dance route. Um, And she was an actual graduate of the New York High School of Performing Arts.
2: Interesting.
1: We have Richard Belzer as the MC, (laughs) Uh, the legendary New York City comic who then starred in Homicide Life on the Street and Law and Order SVU. He was still a comic at this time. Perfect choice for this role, and he passed away just about a month ago.
2: He
0: looks, (laughs) he looks the exact same.
1: Uh, He never changed. He just cut his hair. (laughs) That that's literally all that changed about Richard Mm -hmm. Belzer in the like forty years that we knew him. We have Isaac Mizrahi as Touchstone.
0: I loved him. I was like the second I saw him, I was like Isaac Mizrahi
1: in a in a fucking court jester hat doing a comedia routine
2: love that love man
1: it. fashion legend and all around new york raconteur he uh did attend the high school of performing arts for acting and was a student while they were filming the movie i love it and then we have some interesting random people that show up here as principal dancers we have michael de lorenzo who is a pretty big dancer but he also played private first class santiago from a few good men
0: oh, okay
1: also a principal dancer meg tilly okay The older sister of Jennifer, great actress in her own right, this is before she went into acting, she was originally a dancer. Okay. So this was her debut appearance on film. She suffered a back injury and then moved into acting instead. As one of the musicians and vocalists, we have Evan Weinstein. This man went on to exec, produce, and create The Amazing Race. Very cool. And finally, Sal Pirro, the actual president of the Rocky Horror Picture Show fan club hosts the Rocky Horror screening. That's cool. Yep. We have some unspecified who could have been betters. Oh. Because they had a whole bunch of people audition, but they, they didn't say what roles they could have been in. Mm-hmm. Martha Quinn, one of the original MTV VJs. Okay. Madonna. No. She was in New York City at the time, too. She got passed up for this movie and the television show.
0: Yeah, she she didn't need to be on this. He's
1: fine. Talk about someone who did not need to go down an established route. No. No. That woman needed to forge her own goddamn path. Yes. How about Tom Cruise? Okay. I'd put Tom Cruise as Montgomery in a heartbeat. No. No? Who would you put him in?
2: I don't know.
1: Huh. Would you make him
0: Ralph? Mm, I don't think so. I don't know. I don't know where you put him. I don't know where you put him, but I'm not going to say no.
1: How about Patrick Swayze? Always. The answer is yes. Beautiful young Patrick Swayze. Make him the janitor.
0: I don't care. Put him in the movie.
1: Before anyone knew who he was, Patrick Swayze. Yeah. And Michelle Pfeiffer. Yes. All right. Let's talk awards. Awards. Now, because we do so many Oscar stuff, I've decided I'm just not going to share winners anymore because who knows when we might bring it up later. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, This was nominated for six Academy Awards. Oh, okay. Yeah. Best Sound. Mm -hmm. That's all right. I'm
0: not mad about it.
1: Best Editing. No. (laughs) Best Original Song. Michael and Leslie Gore for Out Here on My Own. Mm -hmm. And Michael Gore and Dean Pitchford for Fame. Yep. Uh, This was the first time in Oscars history that two songs were nominated from the same film. Mm,
2: Okay.
1: Best Original Score. Okay. And best original screenplay.
2: Yeah, no. (laughs) No, You're like, no,
1: no, no, we were doing, we were doing fine, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's like, I get it. I understand. No. No.
1: No. Again, there were, the critics were convinced that it was also going to get a best supporting actor nod Mm -hmm. and it was going to get a best picture nod. Okay. And you know what? All that tells me though is that this movie struck a chord and why the story continues to be. You know, it's the story's been told in different ways or put in different mediums or approached from different angles so many times because it resonates. Mm-hmm. So there, there is a lasting power to it because of the way this was made. Yeah. All right. Trivia. Trivia. Alan Parker was looking for an easy way for Doris to finally overcome her fear of being on stage. Mm hmm. So he heard about local screenings of Rocky Horror with audience participation, which was just starting to pop up around this time.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And he went to see it. He loved it so much that he didn't just include it. The cast and regular audience of the screenings are the people that he went to go see it with. Okay. So they filmed it at one of the regular screenings, which I think is really cool. Uh, this is one of the first films to use digital audio for the soundtrack. Oh, okay. I mean, the sound is very, very good for an 80s movie. Yeah. Uh, the music was recorded on a digital system in New York and then converted to video with a final analog mix on standard movie stereo. Hmm. Lisa's suicide attempt in the film was originally real, but it was changed by the studio because they considered it too intense for the movie. A choice I agree with and gives a very nice comic relief moment. Yeah. However, it is interesting because Saturday Night Fever had been such a huge hit and had depicted a suicide on just three years earlier. Mm-hmm. While dancing in the street to fame, the song had not been finished. It was still being written. Okay. So instead, they were dancing to Hot Stuff by Donna Summer, which had a similar beat and allowed for easy editing of the dancers in the street. Mm-hmm. Uh, I Sing the Body Electric refers to the Walt Whitman poem of the same name from Leaves of Grass. The poem echoes the same themes of breaking free from societal norms and reaching your potential.
2: Mm. Barf. Yeah.
1: Alan Parker was a huge fan of Electric Light Orchestra, and he tried to solicit Jeff Lynne to do some of the orchestrations for the film, specifically for I Sing the Body Electric. Holy shit. Yeah. (laughs) Let me pause there. If that song had been arranged by Jeff fucking Lynn. Yeah. Whoa, what a good song it would have been, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. That is the man you bring in to do a slightly showy, but also kind of rocky orchestra piece with a whole bunch of people. Oh, man. He did not actually get Jeff Lynn to agree, but if you listen to it, the music is somewhat similar to some of the things ELO likes to do, Mm -hmm. which, ugh. What a sad missed opportunity. While the Lake Warmer fashion craze is thought to have been started with Flashdance, it actually began with this movie in 1980. Okay. As well, many cult movie historians believe that the Rocky Horror sequence in fame led to the wider reach of screenings outside of the sort of New York cult surroundings of it. So beyond just the fame impact, it had some other impacts too. Cool. At a Hollywood pre-release screening, the audience was led to a standing ovation led by Barbara. Barbara. Hey, you know what? Kudos to Barbara. Yeah. Barbara just stood up and was like, look at these fucking kids. Look at what they did.
0: Yeah, I ain't mad.
1: <laughs> like, the woman is frustrating as hell, but every once in a while you're like, "I eh, love you, Barbara. Mm-hmm. And finally, the Step Up franchise has a direct connection to this 1980 film. This film was photographed by Michael Saracen, the cinematographer for Step Up. <laughs> mm-hmm. I love it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Step Up knew what it was fucking doing. There was like, get the guy from fame. All right. And that leads us to ratings.
0: Ratings. Wow. Okay.
1: For every film, we have a specific ratings system. Okay. For this movie, what are we going to go with?
0: How many hot lunches?
1: Oh, good pick. Uh-huh. Good pick. Um, I'm going to go three like it is probably upgraded more. I was not bored by this movie. Okay. I was actually interested for most of the time. Now, did I roll my eyes a shit ton? Oh, yeah. And did I love the way it tried to approach its subjects? No, Mm -hmm. but everybody's putting as much into it as possible. The actors are committed. Our director had a vision. They just don't execute it very well. (laughs) And then there's the influence of it, and it was really fascinating to watch and feel that influence mm-hmm. without feeling like it was too much of a time capsule. It feels like a time capsule, but in a way that's still approachable yeah, like I think this is still a really solid movie. you just gotta you, you have to brace yourself for some of the hokiness of it, mm-hmm. but the hokiness of it is also very earnest, which is not the same case for a lot of movies (laughs) Mm -hmm. like some movies do the hokey and then they show you very clearly that they don't fucking believe it yeah this movie believes itself Hmm. and i'll that usually knocks it up like that's what takes it from just a mediocre movie up just a notch for me it's like it really buys into what it's trying to sell so i get why everybody gave it a bunch of credit at the time you know it just it, it it's kind of a mess but it's still really worth watching three hot lunches for me
0: uh, i think it's a two and a half for me it is a mess but it's very foundational so am I, I just
1: is at least one hot lunch because of doris
0: yeah doris's character was done really really well <laughs> um montgomery's was really well too and like as crazy as ralph was we all know that guy. Um, so it's two and a half for that. And again, they did something new. I can't be mad about that. Yeah. Um. And so many films that are just guilty pleasure. I just is just, just fun to watch. Films uh, came from this. So it's a, it's a two and a half.
1: Okay. All right. Again, we're just begging somebody to like actually take the idea that it was positing and really make pull go through it. Like actually make good. Make art, it happen, okay? people. Speaking of somebody who tried to make good on it.
0: Yeah. So we're kind of suckers for series, obviously. Um, we we feel like we should see it all.
1: And it's the 80s, so of course we've had some recent remakes.
0: I mean, remakes are half of the box office at this point, And our TVs, and that's fine. Some of them are really good. Uh, some of them, like, really fix some glaring issues. Uh, With the originals, I'm going to give a giant shout out to Cobra Kai. Fucking love that show. Haven't seen season five. That show is great.
1: Well, Diana. What? they, They did an update of fame. Fuck me. In 2009.
0: All right, let's go watch it. So we just watched fame.
1: 2009. Wee. an updated version of the musical fame which centered on the students of the new york academy of performing arts the name of the school in 1980 was the fiorello LaGuardia high school
0: mm. well okay then
1: remember all those things that we were like well the original's a mess but there's some intriguing things that it's doing yeah all of those like let's kind of get into some of the deeper psychological things and the toughness with the students mm-hmm this movie did absolutely none of that.
0: No, not even a little bit. What is this? A travesty.
2: We
1: we talked about it before, mm-hmm. about how this movie is ripe for a remake. And it is. It's absolutely yeah. begging for somebody to do it justice. This is definitely not that. If this wasn't it. Oh, my God.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think they they did a little bit like the one place where I feel like they did better was with um the girl who played piano
1: there's a little bit of that i first of all the teachers are better because we yeah. have outstanding actors in mm-hmm.
2: those roles yes
1: they're better except for one who i'm really mad at and it's not because of the actor it's because of the writing but mm-hmm. the drama teacher does this psychiatrist bullshit which is like no that is exactly the wrong fucking thing to do
0: yeah and it's also like really manipulative and dangerous
1: <laughs> it's not no 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 <laughs> I could get on my method acting rant, but we won't do that here. Suffice to say, I, this was a cash grab. This was so a cash totally. grab, but in the most mediocre way possible.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think the sad part is you could have made so much more money if you did actually tried to revive the original concept.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, could have done that, but like, I mean, follow the step up model. It would have been fine. It would have been so much better. <laughs>
1: I just look, I get that it's a totally different New York City, but Mm -hmm. you could still be you could still dive into the inner lives of these kids. I want a fame that uses the same emotional investment as eighth grade by Bo Burnham. Yes, that is what I fucking want.
0: Yeah, that would be really cool, especially. Because I think if you followed like a year, as opposed to like a whole journey, you could have also had like those really in-depth conversations with the bright eyed freshmen versus that maybe the more cynical seniors. Um, And like, what, like, what's the difference? Like, why is like this group this way? And why is that group that way? And like, it'd be easy to say, oh, well, it's because they're seniors and, you know, we freshmen was like, nah, it's more complicated than that
1: yeah and there's directors who've taken the concept way way too far before Mm -hmm. um we talked about how alan parker probably took it way too far Mm -hmm. and what he did but that's what made it fascinating yeah (laughs) as opposed to this which is just glop yeah oh and it's so 2000s glop
0: yeah which is like it's a very specific time of pop culture
1: Oh, man. Movies from, like, 2000 to 2009 have this just specific vibe about them. Oh, yeah. And if you break out of that, that's that's really telling because so much of Hollywood just had this very specific way of making movies and filming movies around then. Mm-hmm. It was just, ugh. And this is, this is the worst of it. All right. The budget for this movie was about $18 million. Mm-hmm in 2009 money that tracks yeah. it opened to 10 million dollars its u.s gross was 22,455.: wow but its global gross was 77 million mm. dollars. because of course it was it's schlock yeah it's the kind of thing you can mass market and get away with yeah and to be fair you could not mass market the original no getting that into other markets which are more restrictive not easy because of how, I mean, it, it was rated R for a reason. Yeah. So I, I find this one interesting. But, you know, when you make a four-quadrant movie, usually you make a decent amount of money back. Yep. Uh, the writing Christopher Gore gets the credit on the original, but Alison Burnett, who amongst her credits wrote Autumn in New York, Underworld Awakening, Ask Me Anything, and the new docudrama Bezos starring Billy Zane. Oh, okay. Ugh. And this writing's bad yes Mm there's just nothing Mm -hmm. like we don't have a whole lot to talk about here but suffice to say that there's literally nothing going on in this movie that's of any interest every character is the most cookie cutter archetype that you could possibly put into a high school movie about artsy people
0: yeah and like somehow made it worse
1: there is nothing unique or interesting about any of these characters beyond I am this representative. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, our our director Kevin Tancherone mm-hmm. Before this, he did Britney Spears Live from Miami and the Pussycat Dolls present the search for the next doll. Oh, uh, okay. After this, he did Mortal Kombat Rebirth, uh, a Jabberwocky's thing called mm-hmm. Regenerate, and then he's done episodes of so many television shows. After this, okay. that makes sense. He's carved out a niche for himself there. Okay.
0: Uh, that's not great
1: you know how i know the directing's bad because we could go on and on about the poor directing choices he makes with the actors oh sure but the directing is really bad because none of these numbers are any good either no none of the performances are interesting the finale is the most ridiculously mm-hmm. boring piece of garbage oh yeah and and it gets so racist so fast
0: well, yeah, they had to squeeze that in there.
1: I was not prepared. Like, this whole movie has been very ho-hum. Mm-hmm. It has its moments of, like, ugh, but it's, like, 2000s schlock, right? hmm And then it just revs the engines to 100%. Yep.
0: it's gonna go for it.
1: I highly encourage you, if you want to laugh, to go watch that and then realize just how terrible that was. Even for then...
0: I do not. I think it is not worth your time.
1: Probably not. Okay, let's let's briefly go through these kids. Uh when we talk about these remakes, we're going to treat everybody like an arpon here. Yeah. So we have Kay Panabaker playing Jenny Garrison. This is our de facto lead girl who's like the dancer girl. Mm-hmm. Uh she appeared on No Ordinary Family, didn't really do much after this. What's more fun are the who could have been betters. Oh, okay. Amber Tamblyn. Yeah. Lindsay Lohan. Yes. Sasha Petersy. I
0: don't know who that is.
1: Keisha Castle Hughes. Yes. Rachel McAdams. Yes. Alexa Panavega. Yes. Jessica Alba. Uh,
0: I think she might have been a little on the older side, but yes.
1: Rachel McAdams was too. Let's be very clear. Yes,
0: but I they but they both read the same.
1: Yeah, I know. I just I find that very interesting. There's was like Rachel McAdams was like a full 5 years older than her contemporaries.
0: Oh, she was like 29 when she did Mean Girls. You're like, what? (laughs) Yeah, she's just like, she just was unknown for so long that when she showed up and she still looks so young and hot, people just assume she was like 20.
2: She's
1: not. It's just really interesting. We have Walter Perez playing Victor Tavares, the producer. Mm -hmm. Such a worse bit. There's nothing interesting in any of the music he makes. Nope. Um, he had like a bit part in the Avengers. He's basically become like a bit part player.
0: Hey, that can pay the bills. So
1: that, that's whatever. fine, by him. Naturi Naughton playing Denise Dupree, our piano player. Mm-hmm. She was part of the girl group 3LW. I don't know what that is. Uh and then uh played Lil Kim in Notorious the Biggie movie. Oh, okay. Uh she's also been on Power on Stars, 50 mm. Cents, big thing. Asher Monroe playing Marco. Okay. This guy's done nothing. I have nothing else to say about him. Mm-hmm. Carrington Payne playing Alice Ellerton, okay. uh, the other bl- the sort of blonde girl who comes in to steal everybody. Uh, she has also done absolutely nothing since then. Okay. Collins Penny playing Malik Washburn. He actually got a few things. He was in Half, Half Nelson, that indie movie with Ryan Gosling. Mm-hmm. Did prom night? He was in Stomp the Yard too, Diana.
0: Ooh. Stomp the Yard is David's favorite movie we've ever seen in the theater.
1: Oh, we're not. We're not talking about that. <laughs> and and I will say, I think some of these people are probably dancers and or went into stage work. They they're all working actors, but they have no IMDb credits. Right. Christy Flores playing Rosie Martinez. After this, she was in You Got Served. Beat the World.
0: Okay. <laughs>
1: I not I don't even know what that is. And rounding out our kids, Paul McGill playing Kevin Barrett, the gay kid who doesn't make it. The fun bit here is that he played Philippe Petit in the dramatic reconstructions for Man on Wire. Oh, okay. So I find that interesting. Then we have our grownups. Yes. Who are like everybody we actually know. Mm-hmm. B.B. Earth is Mrs. Kraft for dance. Mm-hmm. Kelsey Grammer for Mr. Martin Cranston music. Mm-hmm i find it very funny that lilith and fraser are here together
0: of course because they're in new york
1: i put fraser because of course Frasier. we have to mention fraser fraser charles s dutton playing mr james dowd he's a longtime character actor who is also in the sitcom rock Oh, okay he's a really good actor who is given the worst worst mm-hmm. stuff megan Mullally playing miss fran rowan musical theater she's so good in this movie she's the one thing that was actually like this is great i love this
0: well the thing i loved about her was that like they showed a teacher who was good enough to do it like this could like she could have been like on broadway doing that thing but at the same time she's like it's fucking hard mm-hmm. and like she also like i couldn't do it anymore like i like this is the thing i love but like i could i i couldn't make it happen mm-hmm and I think that's really important when it comes to, like, these types of shows and, like, also, like, um, arts teachers. Like, there's a difference between people who walk away and people who it didn't happen for. And then also people who quit. Like, those are very distinct, different things.
1: Oh, <sighs> It was just, it was the one breath of fresh air from this movie.
0: Yeah, because Maya Mullally is the shit.
1: Hmm. And to be fair, all of the grown-ups do a great job. Yeah. She just happened to get a character with an actually good storyline. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Finally, as Miss Angela Sims, the principal of the school, Debbie fucking Allen.
0: Yes, I do like that. I love that she they made her the principal. That Very was, nice. That was the perfect choice, particularly for that cameo. Essentially, I would have liked her to have more of a role, but whatever.
1: And then for some of the very brief arpons, April Grace played Denise's mom. She was the interviewer in Magnolia and the Arkham psychiatrist in Joker. Oh, okay. So she has been mentioned before. Michael Hyatt as Malik's mom. She is Dr. Noel from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Yes. James Reed as Alice's dad. He was Elle's father in Legally Blonde and Preston's father in Not Another Teen Movie. Oh, yeah. Okay. He has played teen dad in many things. Hey, it's a gig. Paulina Gretzky, playing the gorgeous blonde senior. She is the daughter of Wayne, who has started to make her way into movies. That's cool. Tiffany Espenson, playing Joy's sister. She is Cindy from the Deck team in Spider-Man Homecoming. Oh, yeah. And finally, Sharon Pierre-Louis, playing a Broadway girl. She played little Jody in Django Unchained, his daughter. Hmm. And finally, there is one piece of trivia to I mentioned. B.B. Earth has a picture of Cheetah Rivera in one shot of the film. Cheetah originated the role of Velma Kelly in Chicago in 1975. B.B. revived the role on Broadway in 1996. They both received Tony Awards for their portrayals, and that picture is actually of them celebrating that. That's cool. Yep. All right, ratings. Oh, God. The speed one. ran through this, because God Almighty.
0: Yeah, I was a big fat one
1: yeah i'm gonna go on and literally only because one it is a competently made film it is a movie they made a movie People it is clearly unwashable. trying
0: the adults in said movie are quite good at what they're doing
1: and a lot of their stories are good other than the fucking drama teacher which infuriates me yeah but it has nothing yeah it's just a- you're better served watching the original and again yes. like we said not because it's necessarily great but because it's so foundational yes And just ignore this. And again, God help us. They've got to make a better one in the future. Mm -hmm. They've got to figure it out. Okay, well, now we need to pivot. Okay, so we need to... From one level of fame to the opposite of infamy. Oh, okay. And talk about one of the most lurid evil tales of Hollywood.
0: lurid. That's such a good word. Okay.
1: Because we need to talk about... Mommy Dearest.
0: Ooh, this is a, a TV special for Diana. I don't even remember. Like, I know I haven't seen the whole thing, but I've seen a couple scenes particularly.
1: I have not even seen the scenes. Okay. I have just heard the lines. hmm I don't know. <laughs> Look, I've always heard that this is one of the greatest terrible movies ever made. Oh, well, I'm sure it won't disappoint in that way. Uh, I hope so. I hope... If it is truly that bad, my hope always is that it's bad enough that it's fun for us to watch yeah. and root against.
0: We want the bad movies to be entertaining.
1: We don't want the bad movies to be boring. Because when you're boring, that's just killer.
0: Like, you can be bad and interesting. And, like, I can give you props for that.
1: We will give you better ratings. We talked about Die Another Day. Yeah, that was just fun. We gave that movie a whole extra star because of how ridiculously stupid and fun it was. Yeah, I can get on board with that. Right? Yeah. So, well, we're going to do it. We're going to talk about it. All
0: right. Well, until next time.
1: Have a good movie.